When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. It is with deep regret that I wish to inform you that I have today tendered my resignation. Only joking, as Peter Mandelson would say, I'm a fighter, not a quitter. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Sex, drugs, money, speeding points, eggs, holidays, houses and lies. So many, many lies. Politicians resign for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's for noble, principled reasons. Just last week, Lord Bates resigned as a minister after turning up a few minutes late for questions in the Lords. But he's not escaping the government that easily. Theresa May refuses resignation and he's been made to stay. Maybe she hopes that when the time comes, someone will decline her resignation. Two. But what are the grounds for quitting? How do you do it with grace and some dignity left intact? And is there ever a way back? Joining me for this special episode of the Red Box podcast is Theo Barclay, who's just published a book, Fighters and Quitters, chronicling some of the great political resignations. Craig Oliver, who is David Cameron's Director of Communications, had to try to stop resignations from happening before overseeing his own boss's departure from Downing Street. And Jane Merrick, Red Box regular columnist, who during almost two decades as a political journalist has helped ease one or two people from their political perch. Plus, in an extra episode released after this one, I speak to Mark Harper, whose quick and clean departure from being immigration minister in 2014 is seen as the textbook way to resign. So um, I then was faced with, well, what do I do? And obviously you do the basics. You know, I notified uh, number 10 explain what the problem was and I then had to think about what I did. Okay so let's let's start with the sort of beginning of how someone uh, ends up resigning. Theo this book the book you've written is terrific it's a great romp through the stories of how people came to resign. Have the grounds for why people have to resign changed over time you know is uh, some things which were resignation matters not anymore? Definitely I think that to start with, there are, there are three types of, of resignation. There's a, a principled stand, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, where someone takes a stand for something they believe in and decides that they can't carry on in government if it's going to oppose that position. Then there's the weapon resignation, the attack resignation, uh, a minister who resigns to topple their leader or to, uh, to make a political point. And then finally, the, the most exciting, the, the slow death, <laughs> when uh, a, a, like a wounded gazelle, the minister limps on before being ripped to pieces uh, in, in public 
public view. And I think for the last of those, the reasons do change with time. And I think the most important way is that they move with the social values uh, that we operate under. So back in the 80s and 70s, a lot of the resignations concerned uh, ministers who were secretly homosexual, and that now wouldn't be a problem. Uh, But uh, there, there are other things that come through to be more difficult issues. Jane, do you agree with that, that there were some things that used to be resigning matters that now aren't, and maybe there are things which are now resigning matters that wouldn't have been in the past? I think so. I mean, what was interesting about the Lord Bates resignation and then non-resignation last week was that nobody really does sort of a, a, a resignation over something so sort of procedural as turning up late to the House of Commons. And I think nowadays people cling on for weeks and weeks and months even and it takes a lot for somebody to go. And just remember the um, when Michael Fagan broke into the Queen's bedroom and Willie Whitelaw, as Home Secretary, offered to resign and it was turned down. But at least he offered to resign. And I think that we see less and less of that these days. People are reluctant to offer just in case it's accepted. Yes, yes. What about you, Craig? Do you think, I mean, you know, whether it's affairs or, you know, or things that people say and do in their private lives or public lives, has that changed? Yeah, and I also think that I agree broadly with the with the the outline of what how people resign. But I think sometimes it's also I'd add another category, which is the muddy one. So there's increasingly a situation I think where people appear to be going for a reason, but there's actually a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface. So I was thinking about Ian Duncan Smith, who went during the Brexit referendum, and ostensibly he went over the personal independence payment. But the reality is that there were two other big themes there. One was his hatred of George Osborne and tiredness of feeling that he was being humiliated by him over the years and secondly of course Brexit but of course the headline reason that he was interviewed over and went out and talked about was the personal independence payment. I think if any minister goes out trying to claim in their statement that they're resigning with honour, you know that there's another reason. (laughs) The best example is possibly Michael Heseltine back in 1986. He had a big statement uh, to the press saying, there's no place for me with honour in this cabinet. He's really starting, firing the starting gun in a leadership bid. And I think that's exactly the same sort of thing that uh, Ian Duncan Smith was doing. We're hardly a couple of minutes into it and I'm already feeling a kind of attitude, which is the reality of journalists looking at people and saying (laughs) that they're not really being honourable and they don't really care. I would just stick up a little bit for that. And I think that we went through several resignations when I was in Downing Street. And David Cameron kept coming back to the point of, I need to allow this person due process. I need to allow this person the opportunity to make their case and explain themselves. And I think too often that really gets lost. In fact, one of the criticisms early on when David Cameron had was you quite often hang on to people for longer than people might have expected because out of a sense of loyalty and out of a sense of due process even if that was damaging him personally and sometimes it works yeah so jeremy hunt who's currently the health secretary and has been there for a number of years do you remember how close he got to going when he was in the department of culture yeah and over hacking and and did he have an inappropriate relationship with the then news international so i think that sometimes that does work but also there's a reality. I remember when Maria Miller had to resign. And I remember saying at the beginning of the week to David Cameron, look, this is only going one way and we will lose a lot of political capital this week by protecting her and continuing. And I felt pretty bad about that, but that was my judgment. And then I remember very, very late on the Thursday night, he'd just been to a dinner and him phoning me up and actually waking me up. It was sort of after midnight and saying, you're right, it's going to have to happen. And so how does that then play out 
who has the difficult conversation with... So Maria Miller had been claiming expenses on a... Parliamentary expenses on a home where her parents were also living and there was a question about whether or not that was the correct use of her expenses. I think the reality of those situations is actually that the Prime Minister has to have a word. And I think that in those circumstances that quite often a dignified ladder is provided (laughs) for them to climb down and say, I am resigning. So, for example, what you saw with Damien Green is that there's absolutely no doubt that just before Christmas he was told you have to go but he was presented with a dignified ladder to say you can say you're resigning Theo given that we brought up Damien Green the interesting thing in the chapter in your book is it the Damien Green story doesn't start last summer or even when he went out and had a drink with Kate Maltby it goes right back to when he was in opposition in sort of 2008 and the police were basically fell out with the police because he was getting leaks from the home office and he was arrested at the time the police didn't get to to bang him up as they might have liked and this this sort of festering sword went on for years and years and years in the end some argue the police got their man well i think this goes back to what craig was saying that resignations often aren't about what they seem to be about to begin with and another feature that comes in throughout the resignations that i've had a look at are that once someone is injured once someone is vulnerable their enemies pile in and that's a very good example of um, an old a group of enemies of damien green's bringing back an issue that they felt wasn't properly prosecuted at the time. Another good example is um, is Liam Fox, which I, th- I think you were at, um, I was at Downing Street at the time, Craig, but all manner of enemies of Liam Fox emerged <laughs> once it looked like he it was It turned damaged. out there were quite a lot. I, swear, I remember, Jane, you and I were independent on Sunday mm. then, and the, the Liam Fox story was quite a, a thing to sort of behold, how many different elements you know, suddenly emerged. Well, he found himself, I think, simultaneously accused of being a, a government shill and a Mossad spy, and it, from every angle of people who don't like <laughs> Liam Fox. And, and eventually, the, the, he had to go perhaps more because of the, comp, the sort of accumulation yeah. of different difficulties. So, so there was a day where Ed Lewis Ellen and I were sent out to go and see um, Liam Fox and it was after many weeks of, of, of the story running and I remember walking across um, Horse Guards Parade and seeing Liam Fox in the doorway of his residence and thinking god I hope nobody's going to actually take a picture of this but the meeting was essentially this just can't go on it's actually stopping you doing your job it's getting in the way of government business and to be fair to Liam you know he said um, look, everybody have a cup of tea. I understand what's going on here. I agree. I've come to that conclusion myself. And I remember him saying, you know, after he'd taken the decision, you know, there are very few things in life that a cup of tea can't make better. And, you know, and, and there is a moment for those people of real tragedy. And I think sometimes in journalism, I was a journalist before going into number 10, but sometimes in journalism, there is a failure to realise the humanity of the person involved, what it's like for them and what it's like for their family. The other case of something dragging out over a very, very long period of time was was Andrew Mitchell on the Plebgate affair. That went on for well over 30 days, and it was just this sense of bleeding away. But again, a prime minister having a minister looking him in the eye and saying, this is not true, I didn't do it, you cannot fire me for something I didn't do. And David Cameron feeling quite strongly, look, I need to allow this person a sense of natural justice. And again, I think that that's often not factored in, in terms of like you're sitting in a room with somebody, they're looking in you in the eye and they're saying, I am telling you, I didn't do this. What do you then do as prime minister? But do you think there's also a thing where obviously we do have to think about the humanity, but also politicians have a special kind of condition, as it were, that they think their their normal rules don't apply to them so that they can act inappropriately and get away with it. And I think that that does suggest why some people cling on for longer than others. I mean, you look yeah. at the, the Damien Green thing, actually, I mean, it was there was a huge background to that, but I don't think he would have 
the, obviously the inquiry wouldn't have been happening anyway if it wasn't for the harassment scandal. I think the, the atmosphere, the whole context of November and December, I think it gave the fact that he technically broke, broke the ministerial code. I think it gave Theresa May a really good excuse for him to go because actually it would have been terrible if, if for her, it would have looked really bad for her if he hadn't technically bre- broken the ministerial code and had carried on. If he'd, if he'd basically responded to... Because what, yeah. what, the way that someone responds immediately to a story like this breaking is often key. And it, Basically what happened was he put out a statement saying he knew nothing about the pornography on his computer, which it later transpired was not true. He had at least been told of the police suggestion yes. of it before. And that's what I mean about the and invincibility what, of... They, and that's, they that's think what they're did invincible. for Pretty Patel as well. Yes. Her initial response was to tell the Guardian, oh, no, Boris Johnson, you're all about my... <laughs> really miserable sounding holiday in Israel going around meeting government ministers um, and then it turned out that that wasn't the case and it's the it's the but I think reaction a, and the but the, I do think there's a danger of like applying to politicians look they're all a different type of person they're a different class they don't behave like normal people most people when they're confronted with an allegation want to be able to defend themselves now I'm not saying it's right or wrong and I don't want to go into individual cases but the reality of being in that situation where moment after moment tweets are coming through asking questions raising things the pressure on a person can Mm. be immense and sometimes and I think probably you'll know a bit more about this having researched it all is sometimes people actually go when afterwards people go well what was that really all about (laughs) yes I I think that the cardinal rule is if you're dishonest you're toast and the problem with issuing briefings um, left right and center and responding to accusations coming from all sides when you're under pressure in the eye of the storm is that it's very easy to to look like you're you contradicted yourself without meaning to and in the end I think that's what does for some people the best example is perhaps Peter Mandelson in both his resignations actually people look back at it and say well you know, wh- wh- why did you have to go? But he tied himself in knots by going on television and, and trying to argue his way out of it. And also, because when a story, with hindsight, the story always looks big, but sometimes when the story breaks initially, like the Pretty Patel story, it's broken by the BBC, it didn't seem, you know, the government's consumed by any number of other things. It wasn't that big a story to start with. And so the temptation to give a sort of partial answer or to think, well, if I just tell them that, you know, that'll do and it'll go away. But actually, it's, that's what sort of loops back round and, and gets them in the end. The, the sort of initial briefing. And then, of course, you have friends of the minister who sometimes is the minister themselves or their special advisor or sometimes they do actually have actual friends. But they end up muddying the water as well. And that definitely happened in the Damien Green case. Yeah, and you definitely, in those circumstances, quite often, what you're trying to do is stop energy being put into the story if you're in Downing Street. If somebody's done something wrong, then they've done something wrong and they need to go. But it is amazing also the number of stories that we, we remember all the ones that ignited, but some of them don't. And actually turning the volume down and changing the subject, it often happens and works with people, and some people escape and race free. Yeah. Do you think there's also a thing about the strength of the Prime Minister? So David Cameron was a relatively strong Prime Minister compared to Theresa May. And there is a sense when you get a lot of resignations coming in quick succession, does that make the Prime Minister look weaker, not stronger, do you think? I mean, is there a case of sort of, oh, it's the government is in chaos because he's, she, you know, she keeps on having ministers having to resign. And that's, I had this sort of a, amusing moment when Lord Bates was resigning and Theresa May was all the way in China and she's waking up in the morning and gets her briefing notes and someone says to her, Lord Bates has resigned and she's saying, who? <laughs> yeah, I've never met the guy. <laughs> but I think that that's, I think that's definitely true. I remember on Andrew Cooper, who was our pollster at Downing Street, coming in weeks into the Andrew Mitchell story. I think it was 
way past 30 days and coming in and said, I've just done a focus group with people who identify themselves as politically engaged. And I asked them, say, look, there's been a story raging in Westminster for the last month or so. Can you say what it is? And people shook their heads. And then he slowly prompted them and prompted them and prompted them to the point that it was obvious that they were talking about this story. And one of the people in the focus group said, oh, yeah, isn't that that Labour guy who called the policeman <laughs> a pleb or something? And that was extraordinary as well. Sometimes that lack of engagement and switched offness of people like, I really can't be bothered engaging with that, can be a friend sometimes mm. because actually it's not causing the outrage out there that it necessarily is within the bubble. And so from a press point of view then, Jane, as a journalist, do, do you... Because it is a good, from a journalist's point of view, sometimes it's basically a good game. Once, once mm. there's a sort of sense of a wounded minister, yes, that, you know, a, a journalist claiming a scalp is sort of seen as a, as a good hit. Yes, and you mentioned earlier actually the sort of you know being in Westminster and sort of once there is a sense around somebody having that kind of like a wounded gazelle, as Theo said earlier, the kind of pack mentality really kicks in, and actually. You know, you can have several years where um, we don't have a high-profile cabinet resignation and the pack is getting really bored and it's kind of, you know, well, we need something to do. And actually that's that sounds like a kind of great condemnation of the lobby, but actually it is just part of that show business. That is kind of politics. And, um, I mean, I remember, I mean, you know, not to sort of spoil Quake my... Quake doesn't look convinced by this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, so. I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of saintly figure, but I do actually think that sometimes that there does need to be a bit of reflection about you are actually dealing with people's lives sometimes. And sometimes I people have clearly yes. done something wrong, yes. and that needs to... And then sometimes that, that baiting, and I think it's interesting using the words like show business and using the words about, like, you need something to do. You know, like, <laughs> and it, I would think that any politicians listening to this are probably tearing their hair. Around. But often it's not like we go after people unfairly. You know, there are reasons why ministers resign and, you know, conflicts of interest. I mean, thinking about David Blunkett, two conflicts of interest over, you know, he was both, he was cleared on both occasions, but he still had to go because he was, but I, I think that was a very human flaw that he had, that he didn't see that there was a conflict because it was involving people close to him. You know, I don't want to be unfair about politicians, but I think there is sort of the human flaws always creep in. And I think, so Charles Kennedy, for example, when he resigned and he initially first refused to resign, but his party were alarmed at his drinking. And I think that was a very, very sad resignation because he didn't see that he had his own problems. He didn't see that he was an alcoholic. Sometimes I think, yeah, that yeah. can... And that was interesting, the example a lot of, of actually, I was a journalist at the time and it was well known that Charles Kennedy was an alcoholic throughout journalism. Mm. And actually people had chosen not to do it. And I think it was Daisy McAndrew actually mm. said actually you know what this is an issue and mm. she was right i think there's also and i take your point craig that not everyone is necessarily gripped by play per gate out in the real world you could park quite a lot of political journalism and say well you're on a day-to-day -day basis to have you know that much impact but actually holding ministers to account and pointing out that a cabinet minister can't go to israel and hold a whole load of meetings with a foreign government and then lie about it i'm 100 percent with you on that. <laughs> that but that can't and and so even if that doesn't ignite the whole country although twenty-four thousand people tracks <laughs> yeah. fly home so it's got most it of engaged, the journalists yes exactly engage some <laughs> but there is that sort of sense of, of journalists doing their job. Journalists crop up in your book all the time, Theo, of, of sort of picking away at this. Absolutely. And I think one thing I'd refer anyone who's interested in how journalists go after ministers to is uh, another resignation that, that Craig would have worked through is um, Chris Hune's, um Isabel Oakeshott's pursuit of Chris Hune. Uh, usually we don't get to see how you guys work uh, undercover and uh, behind closed doors, but publicly available are Isabel Oakeshott's emails uh, with Chris Hune's ex-wife, leading to the story that exposed him as, as a liar and forced him to resign. They are hugely interesting because they show exactly how much a journalist values 
claiming their scalp. But also, I think she's been slightly unfairly maligned about them. I think they show a good journalist at work. The Christian one is slightly different because it predated him being in the cabinet. But when a cabinet minister does something stupid as a cabinet, you know, they, they are running the country. And if and if they do something stupid and they get caught, they deserve to yeah, feel nobody's, the pain but, of that. but I think if you listen to what I'm saying, I'm just saying that all I think that yeah, is sometimes human. lacking from that is a human factor. Yeah. And I do think that in the charge for saying, hey, it's show business and let's move on to the next one, that actually sometimes that's lacking. And you know what the reality is, that sometimes people make mistakes. Yeah. I, I had, a, I suppose, a, a moment of, you know, as a journalist, obviously, we are supposed to, you know, keep our sources and not report our sources. And interestingly, when, I, when the whole um, harassment story started and I started talking about how I'd been sexually harassed as, um, after a lunch in Westminster, and a fellow journalist actually said to me, if you go public with this person's name, you are actually breaching lo- lobby rules in a sense because you're naming. What idiot said that. <laughs> I suppose you're not well, going to name them. <laughs> <laughs> but I am actually going to be reporting somebody. So when I reported Michael Fallon to Downing Street at five o'clock on the Wednesday and he resigned two hours later, I, I was actually thinking, I'm doing this as because it's wrong, not as a journalist, but as somebody who had been sexually harassed. That was because it was wrong what he had done. Because you went from journalist to person in news story. Mm, that was, yes. a, a sense of what Craig is talking about, of yeah. being a human being in a news story and the pressure that comes with that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was sort of, yeah, I, I could see the other side. and I, could, I was going to say, you must have actually felt at that moment, God, there are people who are now questioning me and saying that I'm wrong. And, yes. And, even, and felt the pain of the inappropriateness of absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, I feared having journalists outside. You know, I was being called by journalists anyway. When he resigned, I was still anonymous at that, at that point, but I was having journalists calling me because they were putting two and two together because I talked about an anonymous Tory MP and then actually when I decided to write my piece for the Observer about four days later and I called just sort of made a couple of calls to say that this is coming up and I remember standing in my local park and my swings with my daughter and thinking I am going to have journalists on my doorstep tonight and that was a really weird moment of sort of looking at the other side looking through the, the looking glass and seeing what the other side what happens to the other side and actually we didn't have any journalists turning up. It's because you wrote a piece of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> no, no journalist is going to come in doorstep you on a Sunday. So moving on then, and uh, I suppose that applies to a lot of the people we've been talking about, is there a way back? Because some people resign in quite spectacular fashion. Theo, you mentioned Peter Madison, who managed to do it not once but twice and still uh, made a comeback. And yet others, partly through the way that they go and maybe stuff that's sort of found out at Earth was, you know, Liam Fox made a comeback. Uh, Mark Harper, who I've spoken to for the other episode, he, he you know, came back and had a couple of jobs afterwards. So there is a way back for some people. I think actually the, the best example of this is what we've just been talking about, the contrast perhaps between Michael Fallon, who I understand very shortly after you reported uh, the incident to Downing Street, made a statement late at night, quit immediately, did not seek to fight it, and has retreated from public life for now, remains an MP. And Damien Green, who who had allegations uh, also in that same scandal about him, and decided to fight, and as we discussed earlier, faced a barrage of new allegations, both related and unrelated. So I wonder whether it is easier for someone who goes early to come back later or not. And I think we'll find out. With, in, in that I, I think that's right, but I think they also require patronage to remain so they need a leader who is prepared to bring them back so you need to have actually done it well but also have somebody who's prepared to say you know what I will find a way through and I think Mark Harper I remember I was actually in Dublin watching a rugby match I didn't see a minute of it I was in the crowd (laughs) on the phone all 
all afternoon about it. And Mark handled it absolutely superbly. He said, yep, I've, I've done something wrong. I'm going to go. I'm not going to make any excuses. I'm not going to, you know, try and explain myself too much. And then just basically talented guy brought back in within a piece of time and I think actually there was universal agreement that that was what should have happened to him because of the way he behaved I think that's a really interesting well that's a really interesting point actually with Peter Mandelson he had to resign twice and there was no way that Tony Blair could have brought him back because it would have looked like completely complete (laughs) favouritism and you know you can't just keep doing this and he became a European commissioner and what was so fascinating about Mandelson's comeback was that Gordon Brown his great enemy brought him back and it was one of the most surprising stories I've ever covered in Westminster and similarly with David Blunkett having to resign twice he was a a Blairite and Tony Blair couldn't have brought him back either I think at that point with Gordon Brown on his back constantly he couldn't have kept on bringing back Blairites and I think it's worth circling back to what we said at the beginning of the conversation is often there's another thing there's another factor it isn't the headline of why they're going but tensions internally or whatever. Mm. And I think the new Labour um, resignations, often it was because of the reality of the fissures within that government, um, was driving that along and actually saying, look, this person's gone beyond the pale and can't continue because it suited other people. That was definitely part of it. And I think that that is something to understand about quite a few resignations, is that moment of, like, is this really why you're going? And and there's obviously a difference between... (laughs) Had the EU referendum played out differently, it's unlikely that David Cameron would have had Ian Duncan Smith back uh, after a, a, a spell. Of- you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think a question. lot of the com- a lot of the conversation about um, in you know about people was how on earth if we win this are we going to reunite yeah. uh, the Conservative Party? And at the end of the referendum, it felt like we were in the trenches. We'd run out of ammunition, and that we were all bayoneting each other, and there was blood and guts everywhere. And regularly. Everybody was saying to each other, how on earth can we pull this back together? Now we lost, so we never had to face that. But I would have thought that some big moments of reaching out and making a grand gesture um, would have been very likely afterwards. Even despite what he's alleged to have said about Ian Duckersmith? What happened was that I was there listening to a lot of the stuff around the resignation and I, you know, hearing David Cameron on the phone to Ian Duncan Smith saying, have you gone? And Ian saying that he was still making the decision. And, and David Cameron <laughs> saying, I'm watching it on bloody Sky News. It says you've resigned. But the very next day, the Sunday papers then went for the second round of this. And the number one question I was asked all day long was, did David Cameron call Ian Duncan Smith a shit? So I had to ring up David and say to him, look, is, did you call him a shit? And he said, uh, no, actually, strangely, I didn't. But I did call him everything else. Under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sort, yeah, sources aren't quite what they could be. Uh, before we move on to favourite um, uh, resignations, we ought to touch on what I assume isn't your favourite resignation, David Cameron's. What was interesting was how long he'd said he wouldn't resign had he lost the referendum. And then it became quite clear both at the time and you know having spoken to him since that he'd always thought that he would have to resign if he yeah and I think that's it's a time to be grown up about those sort of things there is a there is a time in politics where journalists I think know and politicians understand is there are certain questions that you can't answer truthfully and you know a lot of people will jump up and down and shout about that but I think it's important to be honest about that and if you were saying to David Cameron during the referendum are you going to resign of course he couldn't have said yes of course he couldn't. And the reality is because the big problem for him was that creating a magnet for people who didn't like him for other reasons to vote against him and that kind of thing. 
I remember the afternoon bef- of the of the referendum vote and actually sitting with with David Cameron and George Osborne and Oliver Letwin and Kate Fall and Ed Llewellyn in the office and having the debate about whether he had to go and I was very very strongly of the idea that if we lose you have to go and I think that that really was right for him he didn't believe in Brexit the reality was he would have just been sitting there waiting for the tap on the shoulder and the knife in the back and it was actually important for him to be honourable. He said, look, I've asked this question to the country. I've campaigned as hard as I can to say it shouldn't be this way. You've chosen to go the other way. How can I stay? I know it's not fashionable to have sympathy for David Cameron in Westminster <laughs> oh, at the is, moment. But actually, I do have sympathy for him. I mean, he did everything that the Conservative Party asked of him. He, he gave the referendum. He did what he thought was right for the country. And he went... Honourably and so quickly, I mean, it took everybody, I think, by surprise, apart from those in number 10, because it was so sort of 8am or whatever time it was. And um, and I think, yeah, and I think he deserves credit for that. But at the moment, it's not fashionable to give him credit. Yeah. I think a, a, a final thing that David Cameron's story does does um, bring to light is that uh, I remember throughout the campaign, backbenchers, Labour backbenchers standing up and asking him that question, knowing that he'd have to lie and knowing that it would be a lie. And I think that's another thing about political resignations. Behind the scenes, there's usually an opposition backbencher. So for Chris Hune, mm. there's Simon Danchuk raised it. John Mann went for Liam Fox. And uh, it really matters how committed and how good the opposition is to, to keep it in the news. To keep on kneeling. And actually, I think one of the interesting things uh, I always think about Theresa May's Helds is great uh, hero, or hero or great uh, politician for having survived at the Home Office for so long. If she'd been up against David Davis, Shadow Home Secretary, while she was in the Home Office, she might not have. There were she, there were bumps along the road when she was at the Home Office, but for some reason, Yvette Cooper never quite managed to to sort of needle her or, or to hammer her away. It's also at her. the question of patronage. Yes, she didn't make many mistakes in the Home Office, but the reality is she also had a Prime Minister that was prepared was to back her. Okay, but in a moment. I'll ask the panel to name their favourite resignations. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Right then, welcome back to the Red Box podcast. I'm joined by Theo Barkley, Jane Merrick and Craig Oliver. Now let's turn our attention to your favourite ever resignations. So let's start with you, Theo, because you're the one who's really dug it deep into these. So which one? Is it 20? How many are you about, in the About book? 20. About 20. So which is your which is your favourite? I'm going to pick a slightly more obscure one. Um, in This week we're celebrating the 100-year anniversary of um, 
uh, women's suffrage. I'm going to pick the Duchess of Athol, who was the uh, Scotland's first woman MP, uh, elected in 1924, and she became a militant anti-fascist campaigner uh, through the rise of Hitler uh, in the 30s. And she did a David Davis, or I should say David Davis did a her, uh, in, in 1938, <laughs> and she quit her seat at a stage of by-election in protest against Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement, her own Prime Minister, very bravely, and fought an ultimately losing campaign that came very close to, to toppling the government. But she also, re- reading the, the chapter of the book, she's also an incredibly colourful character who, one of the reasons why she lost was basically she'd alienated almost everyone. She's sort of come down from um, her palatial castle in Scotland and annoyed every single person in Westminster. She's also, funnily enough, opposed women's right to vote, uh, which which seems very unlikely for a female MP. But she had such a, <laughs> such a forceful personality and believed, and was proved right on the cause of anti-appeasement. And it's, uh, it's worth remembering her with all the other great women we're looking at this week. Absolutely. Jane? Um, I'm going to go for Stephen Byers, um, just because uh, from 2001-2002, just because it was one of those things where he clung on and clung on for about six months, and it was every day going into Westminster. Has Stephen Byers resigned yet? Is there anything that's that you know that he can't survive? And you know, first of all, he was—I mean, he was basically um, transport secretary, and his special advisor Joe Moore sent out an email on the day of September 11th saying today is a very good day to bury bad news, and. You know, I think he apologised, but it was sort of there was no resignation, and she didn't even resign for months. And then it was just sort of a, a, a succession of events that you know he just seemed to be he seemed to attract bad news. And I think there was an internal row about whether he'd lied to Parliament about his chief press officer Martin Sixsmith. But what's what was sort of so extraordinary is that he carried on. It was almost like he had this. He had that air of invincibility that I talked about earlier. That he carried on being slightly brazen. So in 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 the middle of May of 2002, he came and addressed the Women's Lobby Lunch, which was our sort of lunch club that we would get ministers a to come and speak at. A single-sex dinner. This I seems know, very unlikely. outrageous. <laughs> and, um, and he said the most, you know, considering he was sort of embattled, I mean, we, you'd always write embattled Stephen Byers, <laughs> he started talking about having a referendum on membership of the Euro, and it was just the most extraordinary thing, and that sort of was precipitating his departure but what amuses me I guess and I don't want to sort of make light of it but it was amusing at the time was that what finally did for him was a transport select committee criticising transport policy it was such a sort of straightforward way to go and I think it was another one of those convenient resignations that exactly and and in fact it was good for Tony Blair because Tony Blair didn't really want to be seen to be you know he didn't really want to have his fingers on any kind of sacking but that but it was a good him. reason it to go. Sorted a problem. But what was also interesting is that he was allowed to resign inside Downing Street in one of the sort of posh rooms, and it was just, you know, yeah. a sort of final gift that Tony Blair could give. Yeah, Very quickly, sorry. I think the best thing about the buyer's resignation is actually Alistair Campbell's treatment of uh, the Sky News anchor Adam Bolton. Uh, they released a statement saying that a huge press conference will be happening in Downing Street, yeah. as you say, and then didn't tell anyone what it was going to be. Yes. Um, poor old Adam Bolton was live on air and had to speculate for 10 minutes. <laughs> so he, he guessed first that Tony Blair was resigning on health grounds. He guessed that it would be handing over to Gordon Brown. And by the end, it had become a sort of panacea of conspiracy theories. And the poor man had to then retreat when it was just Stephen Byers emerging for the resignation everyone had expected. What about you, Craig? What's, what's been your favourite resignation? Well, I, I don't know if it's the favourite, but the IDS one was definitely rich in stories. And I remember <laughs> sitting down to watch the 10 o'clock news one minute to go with David Cameron in his study. 
and 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 him turning to me and he says if you don't like blood sports look away now <laughs> and but but i think in terms of historically um the most interesting one in my lifetime was watching jeffrey howe and i think that that was yes. this incredibly benign person apparently who came into the commons and with huge drama wielded the knife with incredible elegance and grace but was devastating in doing so and accusing Margaret Thatcher of stopping him from doing his job and I thought that was an extraordinary moment of drama and it had a huge knock-on effect that went on for many years. Well I'm going to nominate um, John Stonehouse because the chap I'll be, I sort of knew a bit about he was the Labour MP who got into some money trouble and so staged his own death on a Miami beach but the, the chapter in the book is extraordinary because it's the story he'd started an affair he got into loads of money trouble owed something like a million pounds uh so flew to miami left his clothes on a beach swam around the corner picked up a suitcase and flew off to hawaii or something to uh and then was going to start a new life in australia with his his mistress the woman he was having an affair with having arrived in australia oh he the most amazing thing was how he got the the net the identities the, the new identity he, he approached two widows in his constituency and took down all of the personal details of their dead husbands who he then took on their identities when he got to australia then while in australia at the same time the british police were looking for lord lucan and so this posh bloke with dark hair turns up in australia with some funny bank accounts and somebody thinks he's lord lucan so the police burst into his house and Lord Lucan, is this what, had a scar or something on yeah, his leg? a scar on his knee, yeah. So the police pulled down his trousers, <laughs> expecting to find the scar to prove that it was indeed Lord Lucan. And they didn't find the scar, so they said, who are you then? Thinking the game was up, he said, well, I'm John Stonehouse. <laughs> and fessed up completely unnecessarily. And that's how he got caught. And then he came back to Britain, carried on as an MP, carried on sitting in Parliament, until he was eventually um, uh, arrested properly and charged. And, and the, the court case was just fascinating. This, this, this guy who was basically completely... And it's a key part of James Graham's play, This House. It is. Because yeah. of the lack of a majority in trying to keep the government well, I think, going. I think there's a film in John Stonehouse. Absolutely. And, and that's, what, so that's what made it so dramatic, is that when he finally did go, that's what broke the, the hold, and, and then there was no majority, and, and everything fell apart. So it was played out. This ludicrous story was played out against the backdrop of really important political fight. But it's, it's, a, it's kind of an example where, actually, it's a story of a guy not resigning over this enormously mad period, that even when he was in court... Uh, and then he sacked his, just before the, the the case started, he sacked his entire legal team and decided to do it all himself. Amazing. Anyway, that's my uh, that's my top tip um, for favourite resignation. Um, just before we go, how likely is it to we think that Theresa May might be the next one to stage a resignation? Let's start with you. Let's start with you, Jay. Ooh, um, I actually thought she was close to, she would have been close to resigning last um, June after the Grenfell Tower and she's just seemed, it seemed like everything was against her and she was so tone deaf to what was going on there. And obviously, you know, the recent weeks have been terrible. I mean, she sort of had a slight uptick before Christmas and now it's just been downhill. But I don't think she, she would resign. I think it would take a lot for her to resign willingly. I think she would really have to be dragged out of there because she's... She is a fighter, not a quitter, as Peter Munson would say. <laughs> See um, I don't think she'll go until she knows that the underlying war has been resolved to some degree, because I think she realises how bloody it would be. I think it's all down to embarrassment, and a lot of it is that the Conservative Party has been saying, look, we're in this credible, fragile boat, we need her to keep it afloat, to stop it capsizing. But I think increasingly, as the weeks pass, there's a lot of MPs who are saying, look, we're just finding this too excruciating. And at what point do people feel like the humiliation is too much that they're going to put in enough letters to, to push her 
and have a leadership contest. My personal gut is, and I'm, I'll probably be proven wrong by the time this podcast comes out, that actually they're prepared to take a bit more humiliation than people think at the moment. And it could be a bit like the Stephen Byers thing, or just be a weird thing that suddenly tips over the edge. I was speaking to a cabinet minister this week who said, I could get a text now and telling me that she's resigned, and I wouldn't be yeah. sort of that surprised, or it might not happen until next year, and I wouldn't be that surprised. It just, Much more likely, I think, is the point at which it flicks over 48 and and then it's and almost by accident there's a leadership there's a, there's contest. A, well that's a vote of no confidence and which does she, she fight it yeah. yes at that moment does she say i'm resigning or do i fight it what is the result of that is it narrow does she say at that point i mean so there's lots of things that could tip it but it probably needs some kind of challenge before it would happen do you think she would fight it <clears throat> fight it, do you the, think she would fight if there was a vote of no confidence um yes i think she probably mm. would and just on the procedure of that do do you know if the um if Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee, publicly announces that it's got to 48, or whether the Prime Minister knows first so she gets the chance to... I think he, he, has to, he has to announce it. He can't not have a leadership contest when it passes. Mm-hmm. Or say that. It but has does she get a But does up? she find out before he tells her? I would else. be surprised if he didn't say, by the way, <laughs> this is about to happen. I think he, I think he just leans <laughs> off the top of Big Ben, <laughs> hollowing like a town fire. The flare's gone up, there's white smoke. <laughs> We're off. Uh, well, let's... Let's see. Let's see how that um, uh, pans out. And then it really will be show business. That is show business. (laughs) As long as there's not another bloody general election uh, this year, we don't mind. Uh, Massive thanks to my guests, uh, Theo Barkley, Jay Merrick and Craig Oliver. Uh, As I said, you can listen to my chat with Mark Harper executing what's seen as a a textbook uh, resignation, but also he describes the difficulties of realising that the game was up. Uh, Listen to that on the next episode of the podcast. And don't forget you can sign up to my morning uh, email. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.